We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We are changing up the title a little bit. We're calling it Follow Me, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, since we're, we're, we're taking a little bit of a time jump ahead, we're going to be looking into Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And so a couple caveats real quick on this. One, um, you'll see a lot of, a lot of folks um, uh, call John, uh, John the Baptizer. Um, and you'll notice I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm still calling him John the Baptist. The main reason that they do that um, is because they're concerned that you will think that John is uh, part of the Baptist denomination. Um, I, I, th- I have more faith in you than that. Um, I think that you can understand that um, John was around long before there were Baptists in that sense. They draw their name from him, not the other way around. Um, but so a Baptist and a baptizer, they're the same thing. It's someone who baptizes someone. That's what a Baptist ultimately is. That's why the the Baptist denomination uses that that moniker because they want to go in and baptize people in the name of Jesus. Um, John was a baptizer. He was a Baptist. He was one who baptized people, as we'll see today when we dig into this passage. The other thing I want to mention is just the, the time leap that, we're, that we see here. Um, you'll notice in this uh, little infographic that we see Jesus born um, around 5 BC. Um, the Magi visit Jesus around a year or two later. Um, and then uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph have to flee to Egypt. They come back. They settle in Nazareth. And then we have this long gap where we don't hear anything about Jesus. And there's really very little. Some in the Gospel of Luke, there's one verse in the Gospel of Luke that references Jesus growing up. But we see this long gap where we don't really know much about his life. That he was basically just living and growing up, growing up in his family and then living in Nazareth. Uh, probably working with his father as a carpenter. Um, and, and then even on his own as a carpenter for a time, um, just basically living a normal life. And what we do know is that he was not sinning. That's the remarkable thing that he was doing during that time. Uh, but he doesn't start his ministry until we see here with John. This is really his first, um, about to kick off his ministry. Um, and that doesn't happen until around AD 28. Um, so we're taking this big leap ahead. Um, and, and then it's only going to be a short period of time, about three years that um, that Jesus does ministry before he is crucified. Um, but that's what we're going to be looking at as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, is that little gap between uh, A.D. 28 and A.D. 31. Um, so let's get into it today. Uh, here we go. Prepare the way, Matthew 3, verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So we see John preaching in the wilderness. Now, we should note it's not as though John uh, wanted to go to the wilderness because he just loved the wilderness so much. I mean, it's very possible he was um, a little more drawn to it. Uh, But what this really shows is that he was run out of town, right? His message was so extreme, um, so against the, um, the, the entrenched ways of the people that... Uh, that he had kind of 
pushed out of town because he he was confrontational, as we'll see in the next section. We'll see that he he was not a, a feel-good kind of preacher. And so he is driven out into the wilderness. Um, he denounced evil, um, especially among the government and religious establishment. So if you're going to go uh, poking all of the people in power and telling them that they're wrong and that they're doing the wrong thing, they're evil, all those kind of things, you're going to get some pushback uh, from those same people. And it's not, it's important to note that it's not because he thought that they shouldn't exist. It's not that he thought there should be no government, there should be no religious leaders. Um, he didn't think that these people shouldn't exist. He just thought that they should be living up to their calling. Uh, he was calling them out because, not because they shouldn't be there, but because they were not doing what they should be doing. They were not living up to what he was, what they were called to. And John, that's the other thing he did. He denounced evil and he called people to righteousness. He called people to live, um, live for God. And he came from God. This is what John, uh, the gospel of John tells us that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that we, that all might believe through him. So John came from God. He sent directly from God. He was also the result of a miraculous pregnancy um, from Elizabeth, who we see Mary go and, and, and flee to uh, when she when she's going through her own pregnancy and she takes refuge with Elizabeth and Elizabeth, John the Baptist and Jesus kind of first meet there in the womb, in their own uh, wombs um, where they kind of sense each other's presence in some miraculous way. Um, and so John is, is sent in this miraculous way to do this remarkable task of, of preaching these things, calling people to repentance um, and, and baptizing them. And that's his first call. They, they kind of sums up, Matthew kind of sums up um, John's preaching in verse 2 when he says um, that he was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This isn't all he would say, right? That's not a, a very successful um, uh, a thing to, to say, just to say that one sentence. Um, but that is kind of the beginning of, uh, or a summary of, of what John was calling people to. The first thing he was calling them to was to repent. He starts with repentance, which Repentance involves turning from one's evil ways and asking for forgiveness and seeking to live in righteousness and justice. Um, how I always have explained it is as though you're walking in one direction. You're following the things you think you should be doing, doing things your way, trying to find righteousness on your own, or just trying to find happiness in your life, trying to find do things your own way. You're heading in that direction. You're only going in that direction. And to repent is to stop going in that direction, stop doing the things you're doing, to turn around and say, that was wrong. This is, not, this is not what I should be doing. I want to follow Jesus. It's turning and going in the other direction. It's turning away from what you were doing, giving up that control and following, um, following Jesus instead. And so this is what John is calling them to. And he, in, in order to tell people to repent, he had to explain it. He would have to explain what he wanted them to do, which he, wanted, he, he had to explain what he wanted them to turn from. That's denouncing evil. That's saying, these are the things you're doing that are wrong. This is how you're living. This is what you shouldn't be doing. Um, and, and then tell them, how do they turn, right? How do they ask for forgiveness? How do they receive forgiveness? And then what does he want them to do instead? What's in that other direction? Where does he want them to go instead? How does he want them to live in righteousness and justice? So that's the first half of his message is repent. He's telling people, I want you to stop doing evil. I want you to start doing good. I want you to turn 
from injustice and turn to justice. I want you to change the way you're living and ask for forgiveness. <coughs> and that's part of the, what he was baptizing them for, was for repentance. And then the second thing is he tells them part of the reason he wants them to do that is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is another sentence we need to break down a little bit. And the first thing we need to figure out is, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is he talking about when he says kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are used interchangeably in the New Testament, and they refer to the same thing. Right? When he's saying kingdom of heaven or he says kingdom of God, they're both referring to the same thing. Um, I tend to use the term kingdom of God because it's um, a, a little more specific of, of who is king. Um, but here's how we might define the kingdom of God. It's people in a place experiencing the presence of God as king. So you can use the, the, the three Ps, people, place, presence. Um, people in a place experiencing the presence of God as king. Um, that's essentially what a kingdom is, right? Any kind of kingdom um, involves some location. It involves people in that location um, who have a king. That's what, that's what a kingdom is. So the kingdom of God is the same thing. It's people in some space together, experiencing the presence of God as their king, experiencing God as their king. So if you and I are in a room together, um, and we both agree that, that Jesus is king, we, believe, we agree that God should be on the throne, um, then in that place, we can experience the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said, where two or more are gathered, I am there with them. He's referring to this kingdom of God. This is also God's creation intent. The, the reason the kingdom of God matters, if you think back to um, our study of Genesis, and specifically the, the first couple chapters of Genesis, the kingdom of God is what we see as God's creation intent. This is what he wanted when he created people. He created the kingdom of God. He took Adam and Eve and put them in a specific place, the Garden of Eden, and he was dwelling with them as king. And we know that he was king because they were submitting to him, they were obeying him, by not eating from the tree initially. And then that kingdom is broken when they do eat from that tree. They break the one rule that God put in place to establish the kingdom. So this is what his goal is all along, is to restore this kingdom, restore the kingdom um, to its rightful place, uh, to restore his creation intent. This is what God wants. And so when, when, uh, when John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, He's saying that this kingdom is, is coming. This is, this is going to be restored. God is in the process of restoring this kingdom. Now the question is, why, why is this particularly at hand at this moment? What does he mean by saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Why, how is it at hand? Well, of course, the Messiah, made, God made flesh, had been born. Jesus was here. A way for man to be fully reconciled with God was in motion, fully in motion and coming very quickly where Jesus would come and die for sin and make a way for people to be restored to the kingdom, to, to have their records clear, to have their hearts made new, that they might actually live as subjects of the king. And so he said he's preparing the way. He's preparing the way. This is what, what Matthew says, is that he came to prepare the way. This is what all of the, frankly, all of the gospel authors attest to the fact that John came to prepare the way. Now, what did this term prepare the way mean? What does it really mean? I mean, it, it's something we say a lot. We even sing it um, in, in church. We sing things about preparing the way for the Lord, um, all those kind of things. It's a, a, a term we use all the time, but what is it 
really mean? Well, it actually comes from something specific to the time. Um, at this time, many of the roads were not paved, right? This was common that, that roads would not be paved. Um, travel was dangerous. Uh, when you said goodbye to someone um, and you, who was going to be going for a long journey, you, you were prepared to never see them again. Um, if someone was going to go on a long journey, um, there were certainly dangers uh, of people like attacking on the road, that kind of thing. But even the roads themselves were dangerous. It was, it was not easy to travel at that time. But some roads were paved. Uh, and when they were paved, they were paved by the king and for the king. Um, Solomon famously, he, he paved some of the roads going to Jerusalem uh, to make travel easier for pilgrims coming to Jerusalem. Uh, but it was known as the king's highway. And this was true in, in cultures all over the place, that, the, that these roads would be known as the king's highway. Um, and he would use them specifically for travel. So when the king was, being, was preparing to go on a journey, a message would be sent to prepare the roads for the king, prepare the way for the king. And people in whatever villages he was going to be passing through would come out and actually repair the roads and make them flat, make them easy for his journey. They would actually physically prepare the way. They would make it easier for the king to come through. And this is what John's doing. He's literally preparing the way for Jesus. He's carving this path. Specifically, he's doing it by calling people to repentance. Right? Jesus is going to find a way to make that. He's going to make a way for that repentance to have a, a real impact by, by granting those forgiveness who are willing to repent. Um, but, but he's already setting the stage, priming people to be called to repentance by, by having them repent now before he even begins his ministry. He's literally preparing that way. And he's calling people to consider the kingdom of heaven, consider the kingdom of God, consider what does God want from us, consider our own sin. He's calling all these things, which just paves the way for Jesus's message of forgiveness and Jesus's, all of the messages we're going to get into that, that, he, um, that he preaches. Now, the odd thing is that, is that John was odd. He was an eccentric. Um, he was definitely a unique guy, just as most of the prophets were. Um, he lived in the wilderness, of course, which, um, as I said, he, he was probably kind of driven there, uh, if not directly and, and uh, forcefully, uh, just by the fact that, that people didn't accept him uh, widely. Um, but he, he also, he wore strange clothes. He wore this, this garment of camel's hair with a leather belt. Now, interestingly, um, his clothing is described exactly as matching Elijah's. If you look at 2 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 8, it describes Elijah's clothing exactly like John's clothing. So he was right in the line with the prophets doing what these prophets did. Um, we can actually see that he is the last, even though he's included here in the New Testament, He's really the last of the Old Testament prophets uh, because he functions in the same way that they did. Um, he's really only in, in business, so to speak, before Jesus' ministry begins. He's doing all of his things before Jesus' ministry begins and certainly before his death and resurrection, um, which really kicks off the New Testament era. Um, so John is really an Old Testament type of prophet. Um, he primarily ate locusts and honey, which were um, kosher. They were, uh, they were permitted to eat, um, but, but definitely strange thing to eat, um, even at that time. Now, it would have been more common at that time in that culture than in our own, but it would not be 
um, it would it would still be seen as strange, especially for that to be the exclusive, uh, exclusively what he ate. That was like his primary diet was locusts and honey. I was thinking it's 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 funny. There's all kinds of strange diets around right now. Where you have paleo and whole thirty and all the keto and all these different diets and things where you eliminate certain foods. I, I want to see someone start the uh, John the Baptist diet where you only eat locusts and honey. But the thing is, if we examine Scripture, it should not surprise us that God would choose an oddball like John. It should not surprise us that God would choose this guy to be the one who's preparing the way for the king, preparing the way for the Messiah. Um, because God doesn't evaluate people the way that the world does. He, he knew John's heart. He knew the message that he'd given John. And he wanted to use John specifically to, to call for those who feel like they don't fit in, uh, to, call, to call these people um, who, who feel like, I don't quite fit into the establishment, I don't fit into, I, I can't do everything the priests are wanting me to do and they're telling me I have to do. The Pharisees are, are always calling me to these things that I, I don't feel like I can live up to. Um, and that kind of helps us answer the question of why were people going out to him? Right, Verse 5 tells us that all sorts of people were going out to hear him preach from all the surrounding regions. And like news was spreading of who this guy was and what he was doing out there. And people were going to see him. Why were they going to see him? It'd be so strange. He's not in, he's not in an accessible spot. He's not dressed very well. He doesn't eat very well. He probably smells pretty bad. Um, and, and he's preaching this harsh message um, and, and, and then asking people to be baptized, right? All uncomfortable things. Um, not, not things that, that, that would make it very accessible. Um, he certainly wouldn't have been a successful preacher in our day, right? He, he's, not, he's not fashion forward. He, he doesn't have any of the, the things that they would tell us um, we need to do in order to reach people um, in our day. But they were going to be baptized by him. Um, and this was a baptism of repentance. They were, and, and, and they were also, so he was calling them to repentance. He was calling them to come baptized. And then people were doing that. They were saying, I want to repent. I want to come be baptized um, and then when they got out into the water, he was asking them to confess their sins out loud and they were doing it, right? Another thing that we would never, no one would ever recommend you do as a, a, a as someone who's, who's trying to preach the gospel or anything like that, they, you would call people to, hey, so go ahead and tell everybody about your sin. Uh, confess it out loud in front of all these people, which is what they were doing. But the key thing is that he was calling them to something different. He was calling them to a different message than what the Pharisees were doing. When, when the Pharisees would, would preach to the people, they would, they would call them to these standards that they couldn't meet. Um, he would call them to, to give more money, to um, sacrifice more, uh, to, to do all these things, to, to increase their works. Uh, right? That they, that's what they would kind of continually tell them to do, call them to higher and higher forms of, of service and righteousness and, and all these things. They would continue to like, try harder, try harder, try harder. And what John came and told them is, you got to give up. In, in God. And the difference is he's telling them the truth. He's telling them the truth. He's, he's telling them what they need to hear, not necessarily what they want to hear. So we can take, uh, take note of what John's doing here. He's doing something different and in a way that, that again, no one would recommend. No one would recommend this as a way to, to reach people. No one would recommend this as a way to get people to listen to the message um, 
he's he's t- being being pretty brutal here. And we see he moves in and, and is even more brutal here in verses 7 through 12, which we're calling the Acts. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, see, to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're asking themselves, what's up with this guy? Who is this guy that everyone's going to see? Right? And this is, uh, the, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're the religious leaders of the day. They're the, the teachers. They're, the, the, they're, they're working in the temple. They're meant to be leading the people. The people are meant to be listening to them. Why are they leaving town and traveling miles and miles to go see this guy in the wilderness? It's not comfortable He's not nice, right? He's, he's, he's telling them these harsh truths. Um, he's dressed weird. He's eating weird food. Why are they going out to see this guy? And so they, they decide they have to go see for themselves, right? Their, their position is being threatened. They're not the number one people that, that anyone's coming to anymore. Now they're going to see this John guy. They've got to figure out what's up with this guy. Why, why are people going to see him? And so they go to see him. Um, and you can imagine them kind of maybe standing there at the distance. They're, they're there by the river, by the Jordan River, and, and, and maybe the crowd is kind of around him, and he's preaching. Um, and then he kind of sees in the background, like way kind of maybe even hiding behind the rocks, um, they're, they're the, the, he sees the Pharisees and Sadducees. They'd be dressed a little differently. He'd be able to point, see them pretty well. Maybe they're even the guys who ran him out of town. Um, and so he, he says, who warned you? Right? He calls them, first he calls them a, a brood of vipers, which isn't a compliment in any culture. Um, and, and then he, he kind of asks, hey, who warned you to flee from the wrath that's to come? Right? He, he's essentially saying, I don't appreciate your false interest. You're not really here to hear what I have to say. You're not really here for the truth. You're here um, to, to kind of spy out and see what's up with me. Um, and so he, he uh, almost threatens them. He's like, who, who warned you? Uh, to, to, to flee from the wrath to come. Like, are you really, he's almost being kind of sarcastic and saying like, oh, you're really here, you're really here to, to flee from the wrath that's to come because your religiosity, all your works, um, all of your self-righteousness is not going to do you any good. You need to repent, is what he's telling them. Um, when he calls them a, a brood of vipers and about fleeing from the wrath to come, it, some, some uh, biblical scholars kind of, uh, assume that what he's talking about is um, in, in that day in the wilderness in that region if there was a, a grass fire in the desert uh, in the wilderness the fire would sweep across really fast because everything's very dry but it's also real small and it, w- and it would burn really quickly so it's, the fire is going to sweep across really fast um, and ahead of the fire would be all of the, the snakes and scorpions and all, all the kind of creatures 
running ahead of the fire, trying to get away from it because they're in that brush, they're there. And so if you saw a fire coming, there would be a bunch of snakes coming uh, ahead of it. And so that's kind of what the, the picture that he's painting there. He's like, you're like these snakes that are fleeing from the fire because you're, you're not helping anyone. You're only there to hurt people. Um, and, and your righteousness is false righteousness. Um, he's calling them out. And he calls them out by talking to them and saying, um, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What he's essentially saying is your religiosity um, it isn't, isn't genuine faith. It's not actually saving you. It, it's all these fake works and posturing and, and putting on a good face in front of the public, but yet you really are doing all these evil things and, and you're full of sin, just like everyone else. Um, you're sinners and you're uh, maybe worse because you're leading people astray. Um, and so he tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because if repentance is real, it will result in life change. Um, that, that's, the, that's ultimately what he's saying. He's saying if you, if you are truly repentant, it will show in your life. Just like a, a tree bears fruit, an apple tree will, will have fruit on it eventually. A, a grapevine will have grapes coming off of it eventually. That, that if it's real there will be fruit. And he's saying that's true of repentance, that, it, that if we are truly repentant, our life will change. This is what um, the Apostle James talks about in James chapter, throughout a lot of the book, what we see of, of his letter, but, uh, but we see it here in verses, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, where he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The argument that James is making and the, the argument that John makes here is that if someone is truly repentant, if someone is truly giving their life over, giving up on, on their doing things their way and following Jesus, it will show in their life. Um, and, and if they're not, if, they're, if it's all just lip service, if it's all just about them, them saying it, but they're not actually changed in their heart, then, then there will be nothing to show for it. That's what, that's what James is saying here when he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's not saying that the works save anybody, but he's saying that the works show what the faith is doing inside of them. The other thing that he points out to them is that Abraham won't save you. He's saying, don't, don't presume that just because you're offspring of Abraham that you're all set, um, which is what they did presume. Many, many of the Jews presume that their ancestry meant that they would be saved from judgment, meant that they had a, a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, um, that they're immune from the wages of sin. And we frankly, still see this same kind of arguments made by people uh, today. You have people that if you, if you try to talk to them about Jesus, you say, hey, what do you think about Jesus? What do you uh, believe about Jesus? They'll say things like, well, yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I go to church pretty regularly. You know, maybe not every week, but I go a couple times a year. Um, or they'll say, you know, well, I was raised as a Christian. I grew up going to Sunday school. Um, or they'll say something like, oh, I got baptized when I was a kid. These are all just, just facts about your life, but they're nothing about, about what you, what, what's going on in your heart. Uh, and that's essentially what these, these, these guys were doing. They were saying, well, Abraham is our forefather. We are part of God's chosen people. Therefore, we're all set. We don't need to worry about this. 
But the reality is salvation can only be found in Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Peter preaches on this where he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's saying, this is the only way. The only way is true repentance, truly turning from your own ways, turning from doing things the way you want them to do them and, and choosing to follow Jesus. That's the only way that, that, um, that we actually can achieve salvation is by, by repenting and believing in Jesus. He also talks here a bit about he who is coming. Um, John's baptism, it's important to point out, is different than our baptism. He baptized people for repentance, where Jesus' baptism is a symbol of salvation. Repentance is certainly part of it, in that repentance is part of salvation. But, uh, but John's was simply just repent, just give up your old ways, choose um, to, to, to live in this way. Turn from your evil, go towards righteousness. <clears throat> and he, he was telling them judgment is coming. He is coming. John not only pointed out Jesus' salvation, but also to Jesus' judgment, which even at this point, or today, is yet to come. That's coming at Jesus' second coming. Now, John wouldn't have known all those details, so he's pointing to the whole work of, of Christ, which, which we haven't experienced yet, because that there is a second coming uh, yet to come, which is when this judgment will come. And he uses this, illustration of the wheat and the chaff he uses this analogy of separating the wheat from the chaff and what he's talking about is the way he's pointing to the way that wheat was harvested the way wheat is harvested today um, it's just done with more machines uh, but when you harvest wheat or any kind of grain like that you, you cut the stalks down and then you have to separate the actual grain the part that you want the part that you can turn into food from the straw from the plant part of it um, that, that's dried out so they would do that in a lot of different ways, but they would use a winnowing fork and kind of throw it in the air and be able to separate the wheat kernels from this, this chaff. And that could be used for animal bedding, but often it's just burned up. Um, and that's what he's talking about here. He's saying Jesus is going to separate the wheat from the chaff and, and bring in the wheat, and he's going to burn the chaff. Um, and he's pointing to that, the fact that judgment is coming, that it all comes down to what you say about Jesus. The reason that this analogy works is because Jesus divides people. Um, when he's properly understood, when he's understood on his terms, when Jesus is allowed to speak for himself, he is divisive because you can't just be okay with him. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. You can't say, oh yeah, he's okay. I, I, he's an all right guy. No, he's saying, he's saying definitively that he is king, that he is the only way, that he is the only way of salvation. You can't just be okay with Jesus. You have to decide, is he king of kings? Um, is he savior or is he a bad teacher? Is he a liar? Um, th those are kind of the, the only options. Um, and, and so Jesus causes this separation. You must repent and believe in him or reject him. There's no other way. And I encourage you today to repent and believe in him because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's look at the last section of this chapter today, well pleased, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. 
John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The main question that people have about this passage is, why was Jesus baptized? Um, and, and I understand that, that it can be difficult to understand. Um, he obviously didn't need to repent because he had never he had never sinned. He never did anything that he needed to ask forgiveness for or turn from. He was 100% righteous, walking in the right direction, um, doing everything that he should that he should do. Uh, and we see that John even tries to stop him. John tries to say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I, I know you. Obviously, they were related." So he would have known him growing up a bit. He, he would have witnessed him, if even from a distance, and go, I don't, need to be, I, don't, I don't need to baptize you. You might need to baptize me. John recognized his own sin. Uh, he knew that he wasn't perfect, uh, but that he knew that Jesus was. And so he tries to stop it. But Jesus explains that he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Um, essentially, he's saying, I'm, I'm being baptized in, as an example. I'm, I've been going through all of the steps, is essentially what he's saying. Everything that we're meant to do, I've been doing. Um, we also should consider the fact that Jesus would have participated, uh, as a good Jew, he would have participated in all of the temple sacrifices as well. Most of which, and many of which were to, um, to repent from sin, to, to cover sin, um, which he wouldn't have had. Um, and yet he would have participated in all of um, all of those Old Testament um, statutes, all of the, the sacrifices that were prescribed. He would have done all of it year after year, even though he never had any sin to atone for, yet he would have gone through all of those things as well. This is similar. He's saying, this is not about me repenting. This is about me doing everything else. I'm fully identifying with my people. I'm identifying not only with the, the Jews, God's chosen people that I'm a part of, but I'm identifying with the people who are yet to come. He's also identifying here with his church by doing this as an example for us. I actually don't think it's that hard to understand. Uh, I don't think it's that hard to understand why Jesus would do this, even though he doesn't have anything to repent of. The other thing that, that we should note is that most Jews didn't get baptized. And the fact that John was calling people to baptism was a strange thing. They used baptism. Baptism was a part of the culture, but it was primarily used for Gentiles to convert to Judaism, to, to come and be part of um, God's chosen people, to be accepted into it. And so they, they understood that, hey, Gentiles, they're dirty sinners. They might need to be baptized, but they didn't think that they needed to. They thought, no, we're, all, we're fine. And so Jesus is also promoting this truth that John is preaching, that Baptism was not just for Gentiles, but for Jews as well. So I, I don't think we need to overcomplicate it. I think it's pretty simple that it's clear that Jesus didn't need to get baptized. But just because he didn't need it doesn't mean it's, it's not any good to him or that, that, that it's not um, okay for him to do it. It's kind of like if you just, um, if you just took a shower and you're, you're all clean and then you go take another shower. It's not hurting you to take that other shower um, it may not be necessary, but it certainly doesn't hurt anybody. And that's kind of what we 
we see here. Jesus is doing it as an example. He's doing it to be in line with, um, with his people, to identify with his people, um, and, and to, prom to promote what John is doing. He, he thinks that John is, is right on. He wants John to continue and people to listen to John. The other cool thing in this moment is that we see the Trinity. This is one situation where we see the Trinity all working distinctly, but in unison. We kind of see the Trinity all here in the same moment. We see first the Father, um, the voice from heaven was God the Father. And, and he quotes when he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's referencing two different uh, Old Testament prophecies, uh, messianic prophecies, prophecies about the Messiah. The first is in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where he says, I will tell the decree, Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. <clears throat> this whole psalm is about this anointed one who is to come. And so here, it's, he's quoting that first part of this, you are my son, this is my son. Um, he, he's quoting, referencing that. People would have recognized that. And the second thing that he's quoting is Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, where it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is a, uh, a widely known, I mean, certainly during the time it was well known, uh, discourse on who this Messiah would be. And so here he says, in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased, is another way that we could say that. And so it's not, first of all, it's not surprising that God would quote himself. That's easy to understand and to accept. Uh, but also we can see that Matthew is highlighting this message. He's highlighting the fact that this was said when Jesus was baptized uh, because he knew that his readers would recognize it. He, they would recognize the scripture in it. They would clearly see and recognize these as messianic prophecies. Um, they, were, they were well known, widely accepted. Second, we see so we hear the voice from heaven, the voice of God the Father. We see the Spirit descending on Jesus uh, like a dove. And, and this was rare. This idea that the Holy Spirit would come and rest on someone um, was, was something that was rare at the time. The fact that we now believe that all spirit, all, all believers are indwelled with the Holy Spirit um, it is a new thing. That in the Old Testament, that was not, that was not a, um, part of, of what happened to everyday regular believers. Um, that was something unique. And so for Matthew's readers, this would mark Jesus as unique and would mark him as sacred, mark him as ready for service uh, to God, just as the, other, as the prophets were um, and so many of the heroes of the faith. And then we see Jesus, the son, and he's called, this is my beloved son. Um, and, and in this culture, this was the same as saying that Jesus was God. Um, there, many people try to protest and say, oh, the Bible never says Jesus was God. And that, that's true, that those that distinct sentence never occurs. Um, but but it, it says it in so many ways. And this is one of the ways. When, when Matthew's readers would have read this, this would have been a scandalous idea that Jesus was the Son of God because it equates them. It, it makes it so that he is equated with God, that he is God. The last thing I want us to consider in this passage is that... Um, Jesus goes through the water. Um, and, and this is, uh, again, a part of what we've been talking, we've talked about before, that Jesus is also reenacting the history of Israel. Um, this is something that he's, he's doing as well. He's reenacting the, hist the history of Israel. 
Because Jesus was sent to Egypt to reenact the history of Israel, then he must also pass through the water just as the Israelites passed through the Red Sea. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, passed through the water. Noah also passed through the water um, in, in his boat. And, and Peter equates that moment with baptism as well. And so we see here again, Jesus comes out of Egypt, and now he's going to pass through the water, in this case, the waters of baptism. And, and what do the Israelites do when they, they go out of Egypt, and then they go through the water, and then they go into the wilderness? And that's where we'll see Jesus next week. We'll wrap it up with this. How should we then live? I only have two things for you today, uh, and they're very simple, yet they are very um, in, uh, complicated, very, very uh, deep. Number one, repent. Not just the one time, certainly, that is true. If you have never accepted Jesus' forgiveness, I encourage you to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, that you might live for him, that you might find abundant life in him, that you might find eternal life in the one to come. Uh, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, the second, but, but also, sorry, go back to that. Um, certainly, if you've never done, if you, the first time, one time thing that you need to do, but it's also a lifestyle, a lifestyle of repentance that when we do fall down, when we make mistakes, when we slip up, when we stop following Jesus, that we continually get up and continue following him, that we ask forgiveness, that we turn from those things and we choose to follow him. Second thing is prepare the way. That we can do this in our lives in, in, in an everyday kind of way, that we can, we can prepare ourselves, we can prepare our community, we can prepare our lives the way for Jesus to, to move, that we can make room for him, that we can make his paths straight. Oftentimes that's all that we're, we're capable of doing is just preparing ourselves for him to show up. And if we prepare the way, if we, if we make the paths smooth for him, if we let room for him, allow room for him in our lives, make room for him, um, not just in our hearts, but in our families, in our communities, and wherever we have influence, if we make room for him, um, he will show up, um, and, and we can do that simply by by remembering him, by bringing him into our lives, by praying regularly, by doing all of these things that we might seek his presence in our lives. We can prepare the way. We can make it so that he has room to move. We're going to take communion in just a minute. Uh, we'll have some music, and during that time, you can prepare your hearts, you can repent, um, you can, can ask for forgiveness, uh, you can ask for, for you know, just cleansing, um, and, and that you can then, and, and remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember how you have access to forgiveness for those things so readily um, is through his broken body and shed blood. We're going to remember that in just a minute. Let me pray, and we'll take communion together, and then we will uh, sing one final song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for um, John the Baptist, for who he was, for the example that he is for us, um, that, that we don't have to, to fit in, that we have to uh, stand for truth as he did. Um, but, but aside from that, we don't have to fit in with the way the world uh, is. Uh, the important thing is that we are in line with you, that we are living for your kingdom, for your mission. God, we thank you that we have that you have made a way for us. Um, and, and I pray that we would make a way for you in our lives, that we would clear 
the road, that we would make the path straight, that you might enter into our lives um, and do amazing things. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. that our Lord Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and breaking it, he blessed it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, he took the cup and blessing it, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. You are the vision ever before our eyes, and our inspiration takes forth the strength we find. Knowing that someday you are going to make all things right. But we aren't just waiting, we aren't just singing about it. We're learning to live here on this earth as it is in heaven. With our spirits and bodies, with our people and with our time.
not disappointment. It's a shadow of your great light. It's a seed in the kingdom, taking root in our hearts and minds. And our spirits are growing for the world to be reconciled. Good again. All things will be made good.